have a couple questions. So, how many of us here know that you need a solid eight hours of sleep every night in order to function properly the next day? All right. And how many of us here have ever pulled an all-nighter? Right. And for how many of us here does the need for eight hours of sleep minus eight hours of sleep equal deep regret, <laughs> right? Nothing in this world has ever convinced me more of my need for rest than the day after an all-nighter when I am trying to function like a normal human being, think clearly, speak in coherent sentences, not get overly emotional, and just keep my eyes open until I can lay my head down on my pillow and just knock out for a long time, right? And one of those times, my knockout was pretty intense. It was 2011 during my freshman year of college, and uh, it was at a school called Crown College in Minnesota, and I was sick at the time, so I think this just made things worse. But I had stayed up all night on a Thursday night to get homework done for the next day. Uh, so I stayed up, I finished my homework, then I turned in my homework the next day, and instead of taking a nap that afternoon, I just stayed up and I planned to, like I said, knock out for a long time later that night. And when I went to bed that Friday night, I did just that because I didn't wake up the next day until almost lunchtime and I didn't even wake up on my own. I was woken up by two guys on my dorm floor who, because this is what college guys do, rushed into my room and ripped my bed sheets off my body and told me to get up and get, get down to lunch. And I told them to go away and I just fell back asleep until they literally did the exact same thing to me at dinner time. Uh, but that time I got up and I went down to the cafeteria and I ate some food. And then I went right back up to my room and fell back asleep until the next day. Now, I'm not very good at math, but from that Friday night to that Sunday morning, I must have slept at least 30 hours. And this event in my life has always reminded me just how much my body needs rest, especially if I'm sick. And this morning, we're going to be talking about rest from uh, Numbers chapter 14. So we're going to finish the story that we began last week in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, and we're going to talk about how Israel's continuous rebellion against God only resulted in their restlessness. But we'll also talk about what this story means today and how we can find rest in God. But before we dig in, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning, your word which shows us through many stories of people just like us, the deepest and most horrific view of human depravity, fallenness and sin, but also the most profound and beautiful view of forgiveness, rescue, and redemption from that sin. Lord, help us to see both this morning, that we are far worse than we often think we are, but that we are far more loved than we could ever imagine. Help us to see and understand these things this morning. Amen. So last week, 
Uh, if you were here, we talked about how God had rescued his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt and then began to lead them through the wilderness to the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants hundreds of years earlier. Uh, and in Numbers chapter 13, the chapter we looked at last week, Moses sent 12 spies into Canaan on a recon mission to get a look at the land itself and the inhabitants of the land. And last week, we talked about how all of the spies, except Caleb and Joshua, uh, returned to the congregation with a dishonest, faithless, and blasphemous report of the land, saying that they couldn't take the land God had promised to give them because there were giants in it that made them seem themselves like little grasshoppers. And so, instead of comparing the giants to God, they compared the giants to themselves and said, no way, we're not doing this. And so we talked about how to see through eyes of faith and the strength of faith. And we talked about the fact that Caleb and Joshua trusted God's promises for the future, remembered God's faithfulness in the past, and walked in God's power in the present. And now this morning, we're going to see how this story ends. And I was reading through the, as I was reading through the chapter, I identified six sections. So section number one, Israel res responds to the report of the spies in rebellion, verses one through four. Section two, Caleb and Joshua respond in faith, verses five through 10a. Section three, God responds in anger, verses 10b through 12. Section four, Moses responds in intercession, verses 13 through 19. Section five, God responds in judgment, verses 20 through 38. And section six, Israel responds in rebellion again, verses 39 through 45. So notice that this chapter will begin and end in rebellion. And also as we read, look out for the ways that Israel's persistent rebellion against God only perpetuates their restlessness, okay? So let's begin at verse one, reading through verse four. Israel responds in rebellion. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones would become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So Israel is crying and weeping and grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Why? I think for two reasons. The surface reason, they're scared of the giants, and they're afraid to die. And number two, the deeper reason, under the surface reason, they don't trust God. They don't trust God. See, it's this distrust in God that has produced this great fear of the giants and emotional distress. And just, just look what this leads to. So Israel is afraid of dying in the promised land. And so they say that they wish they would have died in Egypt, which was the very place where many of their people did die when they were slaves there. And now they wish to go back instead of going into the promised land, saying that it would be better for them there. 
So, so it would be better for them to not follow God, to go back to the place where their people were slaves and many of them died and where they wish they would have died because they're afraid of dying in the promised land. This is the logic of a severely hardened heart against God. It's basically saying, I would rather take my life into my own hands and lose it than trust you with it, God. Also remember this statement at the end of verse two, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Remember that statement, okay? Let's keep reading. Uh, Verses five through 10a, Caleb and Joshua respond in faith. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among those who had spied out the land tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, just as he promised. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So upon hearing this shocking plan to abandon God and return to Egypt, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces in distress probably begging the people to repent and turn back to God and probably begging God for his mercy and forgiveness over a rebellious people. And then Caleb and Joshua, in their own anguish over the people's sin, tear their clothes and beg the people to not rebel against God and to not fear the giants. They say, guys, listen, far from us being a prey for the giants, the giants will be a prey for us. They're bread for us. They'll be consumed, destroyed, devoured. And why? Because verse eight, the Lord delights in us and he has promised us this land. And verse nine, their protection is removed from them because the Lord is with us. But the people didn't wanna be God's people anymore. They didn't want to live in a new land. They didn't want God's presence among them. And the fact that the people wanted to kill a couple of the most faithful men of God just shows us that they probably would have killed God too if they had the chance. It just reminds me that sometimes even people who claim to be Christians who are living in persistent sinfulness may get very angry with you even if you just try to encourage them in the truth of God's word. And they may become even more hardened in their hearts against God. But sin can never bring peace. It can only ever agitate the sinner's weariness and unrest. Verses 10b through 12, God responds in anger. But before Caleb and Joshua could be stoned, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. 
So God calls his people sin for what it is. They despise him. They don't trust him. In spite of his promises, his faithfulness, his generosity, everything he has done for them, everything he has given them, but God has had enough. God has had enough. And with the people's persistent sinfulness, their rejection of his leadership, their blasphemous statement against him, and their intention to kill some of his most faithful people, God is prepared to strike them with pestilence and to disinherit them from a spot in the promised land. Let's keep reading verses 13 through 19. Moses responds in intercession. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say it is because the Lord was not able to bring the people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in this wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So think about this for a second. The exodus from Egypt was such a miraculous event that all the surrounding nations heard about it. All of them. It was an event that clearly set Israel apart as God's chosen people and clearly set the Lord apart too, showing all the other nations who are busily worshiping the gods of their own design and imagination that the Lord alone is God. There is no other besides him. No one has done what the Lord has done. And this, the name and reputation and glory of the only God who is the Lord is Moses' chief concern in this situation. With two million Israelite lives on the line, Moses dramatically draws our attention away from them and puts it onto the Lord. This is absolutely stunning to me. It is absolutely stunning that the first thing Moses is concerned about is God's own glory. Moses was so radically God-centered in his approach to the situation and in his prayer to God that honestly, I don't, I don't know if I'm quite there yet. Because when things don't go the way I had planned or expected, or when someone hurts me, or when someone close to me dies, or when a friend or a family member rejects Christ, the first thing I think about in those situations is often not, uh, is God being honored in this situation? And, and how can I bring God the honor he is due? I don't think that way. And then again, we see this pattern from the last chapter reappear as Moses appeals to God's promises for the future, his faithfulness in the past, and his power for the present. And so, of his promises, Moses says that God has sworn the land of Canaan to his people in verse 16. 
And then he quotes God's own words back to him from Exodus chapter 34 in verse 18, where God talks about his love and mercy, but also his commitment to justice. And of his faithfulness, Moses talks about how God is in the midst of his people uh, and has guided them by his pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night in verse 14. And he quotes God's own words that talk about the steadfastness of his love and his forgiveness in verse 18. Then he talks about God's steadfast love again and the fact that God has been actively and faithfully forgiving his people from the exodus in Egypt up until now in verse 19. And of his power, Moses talks about how God brought his people out of Egypt in his great might in verse 13. And then he asks that God's power would be great or be magnified or be put on display in verse 17. But... Remember, at this point, Israel is distrusting of God's promises, forgetful of his faithfulness, and not walking in his power or with him at all. Let's keep reading verses 20 through 38. God responds in judgment. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the numbers of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In the wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. So firstly, if you remember from last week, all the spies 
except Caleb and Joshua, returned to the congregation of Israel with a dishonest and faithless and blasphemous report of the land. And now God has judged them and killed them. And I think the reason God's judgment was so swift and sudden was because these were the leaders of Israel. These were kind of like the pastors over their tribes. They knew better. And they had a devastating influence over the rest of the people. Also, do you recall what I asked you to remember about what the Israelites said in verse 2? They said, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Now God said, yes, you will die in this wilderness and you will not enter into the promised land. Sometimes when God gives us exactly what we want and what we ask for, it's only to our own destruction. But God would keep his promise of the land to Israel by allowing some of the Israelites to enter into Canaan. The promise would be fulfilled for the little ones, the children, and Joshua and Caleb, but not for the faithless adults. So who in here is a teenager or younger? A few of us here. So this is what God is saying. For the next 40 years, we're all gonna be wandering in the wilderness and all of us are gonna be dying off slowly. But after those 40 years, you guys, when we're all dead, you guys, the ones who raised your hands, will finally get to enter into the land. And adults, can you imagine having to live out the rest of your life with no hope of the promised land? No hope of ever resting from your wandering until you just die in the wilderness? To wander throughout life without something you're moving toward, without some ultimate purpose, without it all meaning something is a terrible and woeful existence. The faithless Israelites would be forced to groan under the burden of their own sinfulness for the rest of their lives until their dead bodies fell in a land that was not the one God intended for them. Verse 39 to the end of the chapter, Israel responds in rebellion again. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised for we have sinned. Okay, this may sound like repentance because the people are admitting they sinned, but it's really just the people realizing that they missed out on a huge opportunity. And now they regret it. And now they want it. They want the land. But you know what? They still don't want God. They still don't want God. Verse 41, but Moses said, why are you now transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Right? God God just condemned them to wander until they die because of their sin. They, They don't get to just ignore God's words and void his judgment. Verse 42, do not go up for the Lord is not among you lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. They presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So Israel would have been able to complete the conquest and the occupation of Canaan 
by God's presence and power among them. But when God's presence and power was removed, they were nothing. They were nothing without God. But they presumed that they were something. And when they tried to take the land that God said they couldn't have anymore, they were defeated and chased back into the wilderness. Now, this whole event that we've been talking about for two weeks, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, is a big deal. It's a big deal. And along with other significant events, such as the fall and the flood and the exodus, this event becomes remembered throughout the rest of history as the rebellion. It's not a rebellion, it's not another rebellion, it's not the worst rebellion, it is the rebellion. That should tell us something about the significance of this event. And this event is mentioned in a few other places in the Old Testament, but the author of Hebrews in the New Testament actually devotes two entire chapters, chapters three and four, to explaining the relevance of the rebellion to us today. This is the divine commentary on the passage. And so, for the sake of time, here's basically the gist of Hebrews chapters three and four. The author repeatedly throughout these chapters quotes sections of Psalm 95, which talks about the fact that because Israel hardened their heart against God in unbelief, they failed to enter into God's rest. And then the author says that we should fear unbelief. We should fear not trusting God. And why? Because this causes us to fall away from God and go astray. And and this is a constant and dangerous temptation because of the deceitfulness of our sin. And so we the author of Hebrews said, says, we, God's people, ought to encourage each other daily to trust God so that we don't fail to enter into God's rest, just like Israel. But does this mean that the physical land of Canaan is the rest for God's people today? Because if it is, we should probably get out of here and travel to Israel, right? Well, Hebrews chapter 4 gives us five snapshots of biblical history. Creation, the rebellion here in Numbers, the time of Joshua, the time of David, and today to show us something incredible. That the physical land of Canaan was actually never the place of God's rest. The rest of God's people has always been and will always be God himself. The rest of God's people has always been and will always be God himself. The kind of rest we need is a spiritual rest, and it has always only been acquired through faith in God. The land of Canaan was just a reflection and picture of that rest. So the the author of Hebrews says that from the beginning of creation and throughout redemptive history, there has been a rest and fellowship with God that God has kept open for his people to enter and that we must strive to enter right now, today. But what exactly does this rest look like? 
Well, I think it's certainly coming into a relationship with God through responding to the gospel in faith. And I think it's certainly the place of eternal rest with God in the greater promised land of heaven. And those are massively significant, life-changing realities. But I think God's rest is something even more than those things. Something that we can have by God's grace in between salvation and heaven. Something in between justification and glorification. Something in between receiving Jesus for the first time and going to see Jesus. I think it's a rest for us to experience and enjoy and live in right now, today, and every day. But what exactly is it? I think to answer this question requires a radically God-centered approach. God has designed and created us in such a way that some of our most basic physical realities of life can teach us something about our deeper spiritual realities of life. The Bible says that physical sickness, disease, and injury is not only a result of sin in the world, but also a reflection and picture of the condition of our sinful hearts. And and physical healing from sickness, disease, and injury sometimes by a miracle, is a reflection and picture of the kind of spiritual, internal healing that we need and that God gives through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And and the fact that our bodies need to be sustained by food and water is a reflection and picture of our need for spiritual sustenance, our need to be spiritually fed, our need for God's Word, which is our daily bread. Jesus, who called himself the bread of life, said man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. And I think along with these examples and others, the fact that we need to sleep every day is a reflection and picture of our daily need to rest in God. At the beginning of the sermon, I shared a story about an event during my freshman year of college that taught me just how much my body needs rest. And that story raises some really interesting questions like, why do we need rest? Why did God create us that way? I mean, God doesn't have to sleep. He could have easily created us without the need to sleep. And sleep takes up so much of our time. Have you thought about that? Eight hours in every 24-hour day. That's a third of our lives. That means that by the time I'm 60 years old, I will have spent around 20 years of my life asleep. Why, Why will I only get to consciously experience 40 years of my life by the time I'm 60? Just think about how much more we could get done how much, more, how much better we could perform at our jobs, how much more we could learn and grow, how much more we could devote our time to ministry and, and loving people if we never got tired and never had to sleep. And sleep is something everyone is dependent upon. It doesn't matter if you're rich 
or poor. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're successful or unsuccessful. It doesn't matter if you're super important or unimportant. You have to sleep. And what happens when you try not to sleep? What happens when you pull an all-nighter? Like a boomerang, that sleep you've put off eventually comes back and knocks you out. Why are we this way? Well, I think we were created with this need for rest to teach us dependence upon God. Dependence upon God. We don't create ourselves. God knits us together in our mother's womb. And we don't even choose to be born. Acts chapter 17 tells us that, that the fact that we were born at the time we were, in the place we were, into the family we were, was according to God's predestined plan for each of us. And we don't even choose what we're naturally like. Our abilities, our preferences, our personalities are all part of God's unique and creative design for each of us. We owe our very existence and the details of that existence to God. And Acts chapter 17 also tells us that it's in God that we live and move and have our being. Daniel talks about the God in whose hand is our very breath. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God upholds and sustains the universe, every atom and molecule, by the word of his power. We owe our continued existence to God. And man, I love, I love James chapter 4, which uh, in verses 13 through 15 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We owe our destiny to God. We are completely and utterly dependent upon God from womb to tomb. And I also think that we are created this, with this need for rest to teach us trust in God. Trust in God. Let's be honest, we aren't always as awesome as we sometimes think we are. <laughs> right? We're fallible, fearful, faithless, fallen. In fact, this is another reason we are dependent upon God because we're not always dependable, even to ourselves. We have certain deficiencies within us because of our own sin. The Apostle Paul knew it. Read Romans chapter 7. That's why he said in Philippians, I put no confidence in the flesh. We, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot change others. Everything about us should convince us that we lack in many ways within ourselves. And I also think that we were created with this need for rest to teach us humility before God. Humility before God. Think about this. No matter how successful we ever become or what we may accomplish in this life, we are still finite. We are still small. We are still merely human. And we are nothing without God. 
We are nothing without, you know, God doesn't need a single one of us in this room to accomplish his purposes in this world. But in his love and mercy, he chooses us, he uses us, he wants us. And sometimes he will use us to do incredible things by his grace for this kingdom. But may we never think for a second that we have done or accomplished anything in this life apart from him and his strength and power. I think our need for rest ought to remind us that we must depend upon God and must trust in God because we are not God. In fact, we are utterly dependent upon God and must trust in God because we are not God. And what will unbelief in God inevitably lead to? Feelings of independence and not dependence upon God. Feelings of self-confidence and not trust in God. And feelings of pride and not humility before God. This is, this is what led Israel to rebel against God and fail to enter into the promised land. And listen, this was a sin of its own punishment. This was a sin of its own punishment because it only produced more weariness and unrest. See, just as there are physical consequences of not sleeping, there are spiritual consequences of not resting in God. There are spiritual consequences of not resting in God. So let me give five brief examples through five types of people. And listen, these are all examples taken from my life and my history, okay? Um, but maybe you'll identify with one of them, okay? Number one, the control freak. The control freak needs to wake up at the same time every day and eat the same breakfast and do everything according to a set routine. And, and he doesn't just do things, he masters the things he does. He calculates he deliberates, he executes to perfection, and he loves it. But if something or someone gets in the way of his schedule or the way he does things, it's a big deal. And it can be very hard for him to deal with, even debilitating. Here's the truth. The control freak will never be free to follow God until he lets go of all perceived control he thinks he has over his life. Think about it. How can he follow God if he is the only one only doing what just fits into his own plan and schedule? As long as he tries to control every aspect of his life and maybe the lives of people around him, he will actually be a prisoner to himself. But when he trusts in the gospel, which tells him that God has done for him in Christ what he could never do for himself, and that God is continually at work within him both to will and to do for his good pleasure, and that God is the master of his destiny, he can rest from the exhausting task of trying to micromanage every detail of everything because God's already doing it better than him. Number two, the satisfaction seeker. The satisfaction seeker has pursued all the pleasures of the world, 
But though they've gratified him for a moment, they've always failed to make good on their promise to truly satisfy, leaving him either craving for more and more and never having enough or let down and left empty and then on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing without rest. Here's the truth. The satisfaction seeker will never be truly and fully satisfied until he rests in the God that he was created to know and that his heart was created to love. Think about it. If there exists in him a desire which no experience or object in this world has been able to fully satisfy, satisfy maybe that shows him that he was created to receive satisfaction from something more, something beyond this world. When he trusts in the gospel, his restless heart rests in its maker, and he is deeply satisfied by the God of perfect love and peace and beauty, such that he no longer needs to look to the world for these things because he's already found them in Jesus. Number three, the identity inventor. The identity inventor feels constant pressure by the culture, and maybe Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Pinterest, to look a certain way and to do certain things and to do things in a certain way. And he wants to fit in. (laughs) He wants people to notice him. He wants to be somebody. Here's the truth. If the identity inventor places his identity in the way he looks or the things he does or the job he has or the car he drives or in how many likes or retweets or story views he can get on social media and then something changes or he loses those things or one of those things is taken away from him, he'll lose himself. Think about it. If everything in this world is temporary, fleeting and passing away and if he allows any of those things to define who he is then when that thing changes or when that thing passes away so will his identity and he'll be left asking now who am I but the gospel tells him that he is not what he looks like he is not what he does he is not the way others view him He is the way God views him. And how God views him is in Christ as his beloved son who was bought with a price and was adopted into his family. And that never changes. And he can rest in that. Number four, the suffering sinner. The suffering sinner is stricken with the guilt and shame of sin. And he believes in Jesus and has prayed to God for forgiveness from his sin, but he just doesn't feel fully forgiven. He feels sick and unclean and dirty, and and those feelings sometimes just lead him to keep recommitting the same sins over and over without rest. And he's stuck. Here's the truth. The suffering sinner will never be freed from sin's power over him until he is freed from its guilt and shame. Think about what he's doing when he repents of sin but just doesn't feel forgiven by God. 
deep down, he's actually basing his standing with God on his own feelings and not the pronouncement of the gospel over his soul. Only through trusting in the gospel of God's eternal cleansing and infinite forgiveness and perfect righteousness in Jesus can he be freed to rest from those wearisome feelings of guilt and shame which keep him feeling sick and unclean and dirty and in turn just keep him stuck in his sin. And number five, the weary wanderer. The weary wanderer is walking through a particularly dark season of life right now. And it's scary, it's hard, it's troubling, it's painful, it's confusing, it feels purposeless, it feels hopeless, and he's having trouble believing that God even cares. Here's the truth, the weary wanderer will never see the hidden smile of God behind his frowning providence until he sees through eyes of faith. Think about this. If God is sovereign and really in control and the weary wanderer is going through the valley of the shadow of death, can he really believe that God is not there? Can he really believe that it is without purpose? Can he really believe that God is not still at work, perhaps in a quiet, mysterious, and hidden way, still bringing about his good purposes, even through this darkness? Can he really believe that God does not care? The gospel tells him that God is in the business of bringing some of the greatest good out of the worst evil. The weary wanderer can rest in the only person in this world who can look at him in his suffering and say, I know, I know, and I've been there for you to save you from a suffering that is infinitely worse than the suffering of this life. That person is Jesus. Further, the weary wanderer can rest in the sovereignty of the God who says, I am working all things together ultimately for your good and my glory. Trust in me, even though it doesn't make sense right now. One day it will. One day it will. The gospel is only understood by weary, burdened, and broken souls who give up their control to him, who are supremely satisfied in him, who find their identity in him, who know that they are forgiven and free in him and who trust in his sovereignty, his goodness, and his grace. This is what it looks like to rest in God today. It's dependence, it's trust, it's humility. You know, I think it's remarkable that Jesus didn't come to earth and say, here are 10 steps toward fixing your restlessness. There you go, take it. I'll be watching. Let me know if you need any help. No, Jesus came to earth and said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. This wasn't only a promise for salvation or just a promise for heaven. This was a promise for today. 
And Jesus could promise this rest because of, only because of, the radical restlessness that he experienced on our behalf. First, in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, praying, Father, not my will be done, but yours. And then on the cross, shedding blood, praying, Father, forgive them, for they, not, they know not what they do. So what about us? Will we, just like the Israelites, depend upon ourselves and trust in ourselves and exalt ourselves and never enter into the rest that we were created for? Or will we depend upon Jesus and trust in Jesus and exalt Jesus and enter into the rest that is sovereign, all-satisfying, unchanging, free, and of great and glorious purpose. The great hope of the gospel is that even if your story began in restless rebellion against God, that it doesn't have to end that way. Your story can begin again today in the rest of God and tomorrow in the rest of God and the next day in the rest of God. And so today, while it is still called today, come to Jesus and trust in Jesus because in him and in him alone you will find the rest that you need and the rest that you were created for and one day you will see him face to face in the place of eternal rest. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to pray for those of us in this room, myself included, who are in some way exhausting ourselves by not resting in you and in the gospel. Maybe it's in a big way. And maybe it's in a small way, but Lord, I pray that whatever the case, that you would open our eyes to see your goodness and your truth and your beauty and that you would give us the grace to humbly trust and depend upon you as our one and greatest comfort both in life and in death. We ask this in your name. Amen.